It is October 12th, 2014 on uh, our calendar. It's the 18th of Tishri on the calendar of Israel. How many of you had homework? We were going to read 2 Samuel, the 6th chapter, 7th chapter, 8th chapter, and 9th chapter. That was from Wednesday till now. Uh, how many of you were able to read that? Come on, it is good to be in a church that loves the Word of God. We don't do gospel light here. And I am not about to apologize for what the Holy Ghost had the prerogative to do during our services. We have never been known as the falling church or the church of manifestations or any of those things. We simply are in love with the Lord. And sometimes people fall down. Sometimes they jump around. Sometimes they dance. We've even had a few run. Uh, of all the things I've ever felt moved of the Lord to do, run has never been one of them. But praise God, if that's your thing, go after it. Elijah did it and he outran chariots. My whole hope here is not that we become a charismatic zoo or weird or anything else. It's that we do not conform to what the Greco-Roman world has told us church must look like. My whole hope here is that we're authentically yielding to the moving of the Holy Spirit and He has the right to manifest in any way that pleases Him. Sometimes when you worship, I just came from Romania, I'm on my way to uh, Peru and some of you went to the third world of Louisiana in between those trips. And sometimes when you're around a group of people and they're moved of the Holy Spirit in a particular way, it gets on you. <laughs> and amen, I'm glad it does. We can let people blame this on emotionalism. They can say it's learned behavior. If you think it's emotionalism, then you need to deal with the fact that for 21 years it's done nothing but grow in me. And I have watched those that express themselves in worship grow in love for the Lord. I have never felt a particular reverence for the Lord when sitting in a cemetery. I have never felt a particular reverence for the Lord when sitting around a pile of concrete. I do not subscribe to the idea that stone-like stillness is what God is after. His Bible does not teach this. It's not been our practice. We're not telling you, you have to do what we do. We're simply saying, get in the river and ride with us. It's an awful lot of fun. How many of you felt the presence of the Lord here today? I hope you don't judge us by our preaching. I'm going to admit up front it's probably going to be poor. I hope you don't judge us by the aesthetics in our building. This was a warehouse and uh, we've put no value on the way that it looks. I hope you don't judge us by the fact that we meet in a storefront. I want you to remember one thing when you leave here. You either did or did not feel the presence of God in this place. And then wrestle with something. The presence of God is not supposed to be in one place any more than another place. So why is it that you felt the presence of God while you were here? Could it be that His chosen instruments, the people sitting around you, are carriers of His presence and we are actually strengthened when we're in fellowship with one another? Then let an astounding question come to your mind. Why do you feel the presence of God when you're with some people and not with other people? I'm not going to answer it for you. I'm going to... Leave it hanging out there for you. There is such a thing as a form of godliness that has no power. And I want no part of it. Can somebody say amen to that? Amen. Let's go to 2 Samuel. 
the sixth chapter. See if I can put you to sleep. <laughs> you know it. Oh, by the way, the message today is called Tabernacles and Dead Dogs. Yeah, I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? So I told you we are in the month of Tishri in Israel. Tishri is the seventh month. God loves sevens. Anybody that's ever read his book has come away with an amazing appreciation of God's use of sevens. How many days are in your week? How many feasts are there in Israel's year? How many months do they take place in? How about that? How many times did we walk around Jericho? How many lampstands in the book of Revelation? How many churches in the book of Revelation? You can do this all day and all night. God is fascinated with sevens because He wanted you to be fascinated with sevens. And there's a reason for it. We are now in the seventh feast in the seventh month in Israel. And I'm not going to teach on that feast today because on our website you can find it over and over and over. I will simply say this. The feast of Sukkot, of tabernacles, was a feast meant to symbolize the salvation of the entire world. Seventy bulls were killed on it because the Jews said there were 70 nations in the world. The idea was that Christ had given himself as a ransom for all mankind. And this would be the feast that we would celebrate salvation of the world. Can we say there's work left to do? Come on, do you know some people that are still lost? Then our job's not done. Let's stop begging for a second coming when the world doesn't know about his first coming. How about... We take advantage of the time that we do have and we finish this work week. Amen. Does anybody know what year we're in? We're in the year 5,775. I know we've been taught that it's 2014, but by the Jewish reckoning, we're in the year 5,775. Even if they missed a generation or two. Or maybe added one that shouldn't be there. We'll let you take that up with them. Can we say that if a day is as a thousand years, the work week is nearing the end? These are important times. We need to be filled with the Holy Ghost. We need to know what God's prerogative is. Amen? How many of you want what He wants? Are you willing to do what He says to do? Remember you said that. In 2 Samuel... The sixth chapter, David again brought together out of Israel chosen men. Somebody say chosen. Chosen. 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bela of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name. Come on now. In Hebrew, this is the Hashem. They don't speak God's name frivolously. They don't, don't speak it in vain. When they use his name, what they call the Hashem, It is so precious to them, the character, the authority, the the reputation, the body of work. It is so important that when they say it, they only say it with purpose. They brought up the ark of God, which is called by the name. The name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. Where was the Lord enthroned? Of all of the places in the highest heavens, in the lowest depths of the earth, God himself was said to be enthroned in one place in Israel. Wherever the ark went, wherever the cherubim stretched forward their wings, it was symbolic that the name dwelt there. That God's presence in God's name were there. How important is it then that the people who carried that ark carried it well? Has Jesus Christ given you his name? 
At Pentecost, did He pour out His precious Spirit so that He could be enthroned in your heart? How important is it that we carry that name well? They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ohio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ohio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs, with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen had stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, the place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of God ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Oh, we've covered so much ground already in ten verses. Let's back up for a minute now that you know the beginning of the story. What kind of men did David call to him? It says they were chosen men. You said it out loud. Chosen. One thing is clear. The living God could have made salvation a movie for the whole world to see in the sky. The living God could have simply appeared had earth and sky flee from His presence, and by stretching forward His hand, done miracles all over the globe. Who would doubt it? There are so many things that He could have done. And He did none of them. Today, our churches are fascinated with some new way to spread the gospel. We're ever more creative, and I love creativity. I especially love it in the church. We're ever more inventive as if something is wrong with the way that God has chosen to advance His gospel. As if He needs just a little bit of help. But from the beginning, He's had one method and one method only. He chooses men and women. Did He choose you, church? Then we don't need better plans. We need better men and women. We need people that not just know they're chosen, they act like they're chosen. They live with a chosen purpose. They have a chosen destiny and they have chosen a certain life because God chose them. They choose Him because He chose them. Is that not what John 15, 16 says? In John 15, 16, Jesus speaking just before He's crucified says, You did not choose Me, but I chose you. And appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. How do you get what you ask in the name of Jesus? When you are about the King's business. When He chose you, so you have chosen Him. You are on the chosen path, doing the chosen deeds in the chosen way. It's no small thing to bear the name of God. And He has given us His name. His name is not an expletive to make our sentences more powerful. 
His name is not the punchline to a joke. His name is not just the way to get a tax deduction for your organization. His name is the power of God on earth. And those who carry His name carry the power of God on earth. If you've thought of church as a dry, dusty place, if you've thought of it as stained glass steeples and hard pews, you have thought wrong. We've not been able to correctly identify the church because we have not looked to see where the name actually dwells. Where the name of God is, you can look at a mountain and say, be removed into the sea. You can look at an army that outnumbers you a hundred to one and in the name of Jesus, watch them fall. Where the name dwells, nothing can stand against Him. Our biggest problem is not that we don't have enough money, that we don't have enough fame, that we don't have enough popularity or enough influence. Our problem is that we forgot that we carry The name. If you live inside of His character, live inside of His authority, inside of His reputation, if you believe that He has given you the power of attorney to use His name, if you believe that you are His ambassador and you are in His business, then if God is for us, who can stand against us? Too long the church has presented itself as a victim, weak and feeble. In need of help from some outside source, the only thing we have ever needed is His power. We were chosen. Let us look at 1 Thessalonians, the first chapter and the fourth verse. Say there when you were there. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also With power. Somebody say power. Power. And with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction, you know how we lived among you for your sake. Too long we've heard a gospel that is simply words. And it comes with an appeal at the end. If you give to me, I will give back to you sevenfold. We've prostituted the things of God with words. Made Him an investment program to build bigger cathedrals. Slicker haircuts and more silvery suits. You know that the name is among you when it's not simply words, but there is power. There is the presence of the Holy Spirit and there is deep conviction. Let me ask you, what are you deeply convicted about? How deep do your convictions go? If it rains on the chosen day of service, Do your convictions wash away with the running of the water? How deep are your convictions? Because we live in a day where they're going to be tested. And if you've not determined now where you will stand then, I guarantee you'll be like so many other that praise Him well, but the hearts are far from Him. Deep convictions come from receiving the Holy Spirit with power. When something inside of you comes up and says what you could not say, encourages you to do what you could not do. It's been seen in women like Corrie Tim Boom. She was preaching in post-Nazi Germany. She's preaching about the restoring power of our God. And a man walks down the aisle. And when she sees his face, she flashes back in her mind. 
to standing in line in a concentration camp. Looking at her sister's naked, frail frame in front of her. And this was the guard that was jeering them. Poking them with a stick. Treating them like animals in refuse. When she snapped to from her recollection, he was standing nose to nose with her in a church. And he said the unthinkable. Fraulein, I know that God has forgiven me. But I need to know that you forgive me. Talk about ask the impossible. How audacious to stand and say, I know that God has forgiven me. How could a man know such a thing? Or can you? She said in her mind, she screamed, no, no, no. But out of her belly came a river of living water that said, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. This is the power of the Holy Ghost. I love that people get knocked down in services. I love that blind eyes open and people can get out of wheelchairs. I love all of those things. But those are but trinkets. The power of the Holy Ghost is the power to reform a life. The gospel comes with a demonstration of the power of the Spirit. This is not gold dust appearing in the room. It's the power of a changed life. The very same apostle who wrote that to the Corinthian church preached so long in the book of Acts that somebody fell out of a window and died. Good thing we're on the first floor today. The same man that said a demonstration of the Spirit's power didn't go on to say you'll tremble when he prays for you. He didn't go on to say you'll buck, you'll feel fire. He didn't say you'll dance uncontrollably. This was not the demonstration of power. All those things are wonderful. And in the name of Jesus, I want them all. It's the power of a changed life. These men were chosen for a purpose. Their purpose was to bring the ark of God up. What were you chosen for? You're to be a carrier of the name. You are supposed to have the presence of God enthroned upon your life. When you enter the room, the situation changes. We are not weak, poor, miserable victims. We are the power of God on the earth, carriers of the gospel. This is how Paul could say, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. He also said that he was appointed a herald, an apostle, a carrier, an ambassador. What are you? We love to call them saint this, that, and the other as if we're something else. Put them in another category. Give them another task list. You receive the same commission that they received. And you have the same power that they have. It's high time that we awoke to it. Why sit on our salvation and tremble with our fingers when He's called us to do the work of God? Even greater works than we saw in His ministry. In 1 Peter 2.9, you don't have to go there. You can quote it. It says, for you are a chosen people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. This was spoken to Israel, but being applied to every believer in Messiah. Chosen for what, I ask you? And when He chose you, did you choose an entirely new way of life? 
An entirely new way of thinking. An entirely new way of acting. Or are you trying to merge the old with the new? He's called us. He's called us to something altogether holy. Altogether beautiful. We're to carry His presence. I want you to know that the victorious King will return for a victorious church. I want you to know that what we have called the meek Lamb of God returns as a lion of the tribe of Judah. In the 17th chapter of Revelation, there's a very clear passage. There's no way to misunderstand it. It's the 14th verse. Listen to how it is said. They will make war against the Lamb. What's going to happen? War. But the Lamb will overcome them because He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And with Him will be His called and chosen faithful followers. You want to know who wins? The King of kings wins. And those who were faithful to Him because they were chosen by Him. Look at your neighbor and say, I was chosen. Oh, hold them to it, neighbor. Hold them to it tomorrow when they think they're average, ordinary people. Remind them they were chosen. When you look and think how poor and how sad is it that those people don't know about God, that's one way to look at it. The other is how privileged and special it is that the King of Kings chose to reveal Himself to you. What an awesome responsibility. Has He revealed Himself to you? Or do you sit in here hearing the things of God, but never having had them penetrate your heart? (laughs) Those poor people over there who don't know about the Lord. Well, if you know about them, they should know about the Lord, shouldn't they? After all, you were chosen. It's tabernacles. During tabernacles... The people of God in the land of Israel build booths to commemorate the time that they were in temporary dwellings. The people of God chosen, but walking around like a nomadic people. Little tents. Tents that the Bible refers to also in 2 Corinthians 5 as a body. You're in a temporary dwelling right now like any ordinary nomadic people, but there is a day coming when you receive a building from God, a glorified body that will never die, never spoil, never fade, never feel pain. We're living in the Feast of Tabernacles. The question is, are we bringing the glory? Are we carrying the name? Are we ascending on to Zion or... Are we placing God's power and presence on some kind of cart? The Bible calls what Uzzah did an irreverent act. First Chronicles 13.10 says it was irreverent because he reached out his hand and he laid hold of the ark. Can I tell you that no man lays hold of the presence of God, but the presence of God will lay hold of you. He is not here for us to steer. The bumper sticker that says God or Jesus is my co-pilot is a heresy. If it's on your car, take it off. He is not your co-pilot. He is your monarch. He is your sovereign. We do not lay hands on Him and tell Him where to go. He lays His hand on us. Lordship is everything. And in this hour, Lordship will be tested. 
The children have been at play so long we forgot that the lamb is at war. He cares very much about those that are dying around us. He doesn't just care about them in foreign countries. He cares about those who are dying in the light right now. Those sitting in this room that are living less than the life that bears the name. Less than the life that is the glory of God, the hope of the nation. We've become obsessed with how we feel. We've become obsessed with entertainment. Obsessed with selfishness. You were chosen for one purpose and one purpose only. He wants to display His splendor in you. He wants you to carry His name. New cart. Uzzah had an irreverent act. He laid hold of the ark of God, thinking that God needed His help. That was just the symptom of a greater problem. What on earth is God's presence doing on a cart? Well, it was new, you know. Don't we live in the day of new and improved is the way to sell any product? We've been using the same kind of detergent since Jennifer and I got married. So it's 21 years now. I know you can't tell it by looking at me, but I'm a sensitive person. And if you change the detergent, I break out in a rash. One time in India, I almost died. They washed my clothes in lye trying to help me. And when I put them on, I was on fire, but it was not the Holy Ghost. Thank God it was an all-men's trip because I relieved myself of my clothing in a dead sprint for a shower, which was a bucket and a spigot. I've noticed that for 21 years, the same green and orange box says new and improved. Because nobody wants to buy something that is not new and improved. We're ever looking for a new cart to put God's presence on. A new delivery method. A new way to make it a little more palatable to the masses. And He never wanted a new cart. He wanted your shoulders. He never wanted a new and improved delivery method. He likes His delivery method just fine. We don't have to turn there, but it reminds me of a king named Ahaz. In the 16th chapter of 2 Kings, if you're taking notes, he got a design from his Assyrian overlord for an altar. And he walked into the temple of God and said, put, put that brazen altar over there and put the new large altar over here. In the morning, go to the new large altar and sacrifice for all of the people. Boy, hasn't that been the church growth model. Ever bigger buildings, ever bigger play centers, ever bigger Starbucks inside your lobby. And there may not be a thing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves, except if you move God's altar to do it. You show more love, more deference is what the Scripture says to the world than you do your king. When did His presence stop being enough? When did we also have to give a foam latte to get somebody interested? 
When did we also have to make sure that there was a treat for you after the service, a gift for every visitor? When did we have to make it a theme park from the edge of the parking lot to the edge of the altar and back? And let's not forget impeccable timing. The most fantastic experience a human being can have in 59 minutes and 59 seconds from doorway to doorway. In the name of Jesus, the church of the living God has got to stand up and grab hold of the name. If God's presence is in your worship, do you care that we worship for an hour and 10 minutes? How many of you were watching your watches? I asked you how you felt in the presence of God. Not one person began to whine. Not one person said, you know, pastor, you don't understand. I just life so hard. You know why? The presence of God was here. What if you walked around in His presence all the time? What would that do to your attitude? What would that do to your life? What would that do for the people around you? You would be like a, a lighthouse in the stormy seas of humanity. You would be a symbol of hope for the world. They might even ask you what the reason for your hope is, as Peter said in his letter. You might not have to knock on their door, shove a track in their mouth, and beg them to come to church. They might see something in you that they were so desperate for that they actually asked you how you got it. Oh, church, that we could carry the name. A new cart. Turn with me to Jeremiah 16. I'm sorry, Jeremiah 6 in verse 16. Say there when you're there. Don't give up on me, church. I got a whole nother hour to put you to sleep, but right now you're mine. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. Let me ask you, do we need a new and improved way? Or do we need to return to something that was as pure in the garden as as pure as in this room? In the name of new wineskins, in the name of new wine, we've embraced so many new things. Have you ever considered how the parable ends though? Look at Luke 5 and verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine wants new. For he says the old is better. How many of you have never seen that? I won't ask you to raise your hands. We sing about God's new wine. We want the new wineskins. And all in the name of being flexible. Do you know why you put new wine into new wineskins? So that you can age it and make old wine. There is no point in making grape juice and calling it wine. It took a whole denomination to do that in the United States, but it never existed in biblical times. They put new wine into new wineskins and the two stretched and grew together as it was fermenting. An unseen force was taking what was ordinary and making it something extraordinary. This was the very first miracle that Jesus did in Canaan. But in this passage, we learn something. If you ever get a taste of what is old, ancient, pure, you will never fall for this faddish, ridiculous televangelism. It won't happen. 
Once you've tasted of God's presence, you no longer fall for what is sugary sweet. Church, you get a taste for what you had in this room during worship and it will sustain you in difficult days. When the whole world has gone crazy about you and all men have lost their heads, something will rise up inside of you that does what you cannot do. It will forgive the unforgivable people. It will love the unlovable people. It will smile in the face of a man that is cutting off your head thinking he's doing a service to God. But leave a mark on him that changes his life for an eternity. We don't need new and improved ways. We need what is old and what is better. It was poured out at Pentecost. It set the mount ablaze at Sinai. It filled the spirit of Elijah. What would you give to have the spirit that filled Elijah filling the brother sitting next to you? What would you give to know that you spoke to the heavens and they stopped giving rain at your command? And you spoke to the very same heavens and it rained whether water or fire at your command. We don't need something new. I don't need some televangelist prayer cloth. His special anointed oil. Or the ever creative haircuts that they don. We need the anointing of God. We need to carry His name. We need to take it seriously. Not just know that we were chosen, but choose Him in return. Church, when we grab hold of this, you won't be looking for someone else to fight your battle. You won't be looking for some superstar, super anointed, super apostle to come in and save the day because you have the same God, same name, and same power inside of you that He protests to have inside of Him. We will stop raising up for ourselves leaders that we become disappointed in when we find out they're regular men because each of us will carry the jawbone of God to the neck of the enemy. Oh, have you had your daily bread today? Will you settle for what is ordinary when God wants to give you the extraordinary? Will you pick up at the store what could only be purchased with His blood in the heavens? In all of the theology, in all of the learning, has your obedience increased from day one till day whatever day you're in? We crossed a mile marker today, Jennifer and I. It's been three years since she had a vision that changed our lives. We've had several visions that changed our life. But she had this one. And in it, the Lord showed us that there were certain things that needed to be done and many that remained undone. We felt as if there was a truncated timetable. Only a finite amount of time to get these things done. It's three years today. Someone said the other night, boy, these three years have flown by. They have not flown by for us. More than 40 international trips. Feels like we pack four or five days into every day. Here in these last few days, we've had a few precious house guests and I feel terrible because I've spent almost no time with them. That's unusual. How many of you have stayed in the Stevens house? That's a bunch. Look around. We usually spend every moment of every day together. 
I just went and hid in my room. I needed something no one could give me. I needed the time of refreshing that comes from the Holy Ghost. I needed to hold my wife's hand. Thank on good days and know that it was going to be okay. Friends, when you carry the name, it is an awesome responsibility and you cannot choose someone else to do it for you. Do you want to carry His name? Do you want to carry His presence? Oh, let's go up on Zion. Let's let the world see His glory. In the 15th chapter of Chronicles, look at the second verse. Say there when you were there. Chronicles 15 in verse 2. Then David said, No one but the Levites may carry the ark of God because the Lord chose them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before Him forever. Who carries the ark of God? The Levites because they were chosen. But you said you were chosen. A guy named Vindal Jones had a movie made about him. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Steven Spielberg made it famous. My favorite scene is when he takes out a forty-five and shoots the swordsman. I think it's amazing. I could watch it over and over and over. I have many times. You don't need to go dig in a catacomb to find the ark of God. He's supposed to be enthroned between your hands. He's supposed to be enthroned in your life. Don't ever let the phrase come out of your mouth, such and such is God forsaken. If you're there, it's not. If I were preaching in a hostile audience, I'd make sure you understand I'm not saying you're God. But since we're not hostile with this pastor yet, I don't care in what ways they want to misunderstand intentionally what we say. The presence of God on you, participation in His divine nature is everything. It's everything we need for life and godliness. And Peter said so. What did you spend last year on cable television? Or movies? Or rentals? Or Netflix? Or Hulu? Or the increase in your data plan? Boy, we will exert ourselves for the things that we really want, won't we? We'll give it hours of attention. Oh, that we were chosen people that yearned to carry God's presence up on a hill for the world to see. When you light a lamp, do you hide it in a corner? Don't you want it to give light to the whole house? Has He lit your lamp yet, church? Has He lit you yet? And if you've been lighted, don't you dare put it under a shade. Somebody say amen. amen. Now I'm going to get my own encouragement from you. Say, Pastor, that's good preaching. That's good. Now I'm going to pretend I didn't tell you to say that. I'm going to receive it and I'm going to run on. Amen. What an interesting thing. They put the presence of God on a new cart and it must be okay because it's new. And who wants to carry that, man? That must have been heavy. I mean, why would we 
burden ourselves. God wants us to be free, you know. The holiest men I know are the most burdened men that I know. They're free to do all that God has said, but they're broken hearted over the weight of the lost all around us. If you knew that your neighbor was on fire, how free would you feel to just walk off? If they were literally engulfed in flames, would you feel a burden? Because the judgment that is coming on this world is no less real. The 8th Psalm says, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man? You made him a ruler over the beast of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, he goes on to say. How dare we delegate our task out to lesser vessels? It's not an oxen's job to bring in the presence of God any more than it is your Learjet's job to show people how blessed you are. Shame on those people for the ridiculous buffoonery. An oxen's job would be to be cared for by the one who was made in God's image. Would not be to take that man's place. God anointed men, not animals, to carry the presence of God. Say, well, pastor, we got no such problems here. Well, sure you don't. You don't own oxen. But when we're pretty sure that our Christian t-shirt our Christian bumper sticker, our witness wear. Maybe that we turn off our lights at Halloween or we do or don't practice Christmas. When we're pretty sure that's how the world will know we're Christians, we are mistaken. We are simply trying to put God's presence on a whole different kind of oxen. Do you know how they'll know you carry God's presence? When you do the things God does. Not when you wear certain kind of clothes, abstain from certain kind of foods, or consider one day more holy than another. Our deeds are to distinguish us. When is the last time you grabbed hold of your jawbone and went to work for the mighty God? When is the last time you faced the impossible? When you laid it all on the line and said to hell with risk, I'm heaven bound and I will lay it down today. The world will follow such men. They admire it. You know what they have no stomach for? Pansy Christians with daffodil faith. They have no stomach for it. Don't believe for a moment that a Muslim who straps a bomb to himself and flies into a building is impressed with your witness wear. They know good and well that we'll give up our prayer time in the workplace. They know good and well that we'll give up our meeting together. They know good and well that if we're pushed, we cave. But they don't do it. The whole world is bending to Islam right now because they're more committed to their faith than the chosen have been to theirs. Say, oh, well, that's just Islam. They're mean. They're, they're vile. Well, they serve Satan. He's mean. He's vile. Islam is wicked. Have I said that enough? It's satanic. Allah is the devil. 
If that offends you, then you need to be offended. Study it. Find out. It's true. Muhammad was not only a pedophile, he was a false prophet. Have, have we said that enough? Put it on the web. Let the whole world hear it. Let's pick a fight. I want one. I'm more than willing to stand at Carmel because I was chosen. But you could say it's just Islam. Let me ask you. How is a tiny group of homosexual activists reformed the way that we speak about perversion? How has a tiny group of homosexual activists redefined our entire nomenclature and vocabulary on the subject so as to call it sin is now wrong? Well, they do it because they're full-time. They don't just practice activism on Sundays and Wednesdays. They are full-time advocates for their perversion. What would it be if you were a full-time advocate for the name of Jesus Christ? When did the world become more serious about advancing their cause than the church of Jesus Christ? If you're filled with His Spirit, I love if you get a chance to tremble. I love if you get a chance to dance. I love if you get a chance to feel warm rushing water all over you. And if none of that makes it to the street, then what was it for? Oh, come on, church. I've made you mad now. But at least you're not sleeping anymore. At least not most of you. Does anybody out there still love your pastor? Do you know that Isaiah 35 says that there is a right way? A highway, a highway of holiness, and there won't be a single beast that gets up on it. God didn't want to anoint some lesser vessel. He chose you. He made you to look like Him. He formed you and fashioned you and called the day that you were made very good. Oh, come on, ladies. When He put the first man on the earth and He said it's not good that He was alone, He made a helper, so He multiplied us. There's two of us. Amen. And gave us the power to multiply. Because He wanted to spread that thing that was made in His image that would carry His name over the whole globe. He didn't want there to be one dark corner where His light didn't shine. How is it that we stand 2,014 years after the birth of Jesus and we have a fifth of the world's population that doesn't know about Him? And that's a conservative estimate. How could that be? Do you think we got distracted? Oh, some of you are hanging your heads. I don't want you to hang your head. I want you to pick it up. You were chosen. You were chosen. We can't give the work that God chose us to do to someone else. You were chosen. How special is it to be chosen? He could have picked somebody else, but he picked you. Why? You ever ask him, why me, Lord? The poor Jewish nation, they've been saying, why me, for a couple thousand years now. If you've ever seen Fiddler on a Roof, Tevi one time is walking in and he says, Lord, I know that we're chosen, but just this once, could you choose somebody else? High price, hated and despised. When's the last time your faith caused you to be hated? 
All right, I'm going to drop the subject because I can see I'm going to alienate most of you. Let, let, me, let me put it into today, today's vernacular. Get in the game. Get in the game. Put some skin in this. If you hadn't been spit on in a while, maybe it's time. Because the world has grown more wicked, not less. And that's how they treated our king. Why should they treat us any different if he's our king? One of the things I could not help but notice is in verse 10, he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Good Lord, how am I going to preach on four chapters today? He wasn't willing. Have you decided that the price of carrying God's Spirit is just too high? Have you decided that if He's this serious about holiness, then maybe you'll just pass? Because David decided, if it's this serious, I, I just, you know, I'll, 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 someone else, Lord. Of course, Obed-Edom's house got so blessed, it provoked some of God's own people to envy, didn't it? What an amazing thing. Somebody else passing on a task gives you a chance to jump in the game, doesn't it? What has the Lord told you to do that you're like, you know, uh, maybe somebody else? And what gives you the right if you call Him Lord to pass when He says do it? Praise God, David comes around. You want to know when the church in the United States comes around? They come around when they become willing to do it God's way. To set aside the business model. Say, oh, but look at the crowd we've gained. Yes, but look what you have to do to keep them. You've become a clown. Literally. We have chicken cameras in this city from churches. Guinness Book, world record for spreading the gospel? No! For who can carry their wife the fastest and furthest? And who have the largest potluck in history? This stuff is laughable. I'm not angry with them. They're just unwilling. But I'm willing. Are you willing to carry His name? What if you love Uzzah? What if you'd rather that not have happened to Uzzah? We want our Christians meek. We want them mild. We want them silent. We want them powerless. God bless Ronald Reagan for quoting the term or coining the term silent majority. But I think it's slipped away from us, hasn't it? You stay silent long enough and you know what? You become obsolete. Is this the goal of your Christian faith to become obsolete? When Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead, Azusa was struck dead, what happened in the church? We're so scared that if the holiness of God becomes the norm, if the presence of God shows up in an amazing way in our service, that it might run someone off. If He struck someone dead in the first century, it caused the church to grow. But we're pretty sure that everybody ought to have a warm, fuzzy experience and feel wonderful about what we're doing. You know what? I love that you love it here. Some of you do, some don't. If you didn't love it, He would still be worth it. And whether you're here or not, I'll still be doing it. When you develop a little bit of holy grit, the kind of tenacity that says, I will not be denied, 
Oh, I bet you won't have to ask questions anymore like why do all the miracles happen somewhere else? You know, I've not found that true in my life. We're going to have a doctrinal dodgeball today on healing. <laughs> and we can debate it. And we will. And it'll be fun. And there'll be many points of view. Of course, there'll be some in the room that have laid their hands on the sick and watched them recover and others that it's just a theory. You know, the man with the experience is never at the mercy of the man who merely has an argument. How about we experience God? Hey, how many of you are hungry? I know what we'll do. We'll read a menu for the next hour. Because when you're hungry, that's what you want to do. You want to study a menu, right? How many of you are thirsty? I know what we'll do. We'll study the chemical composition of water. This is how we've approached the Lord. We're going to study about Him. We're going to stand back and look and read about it. He called you to take a drink. He called you to get in the game. He called you to take up His fire. You don't stand and read a menu. You want the meal. Don't settle for menu Christianity when you can have the meal. Oh, man, man, man. That all God's people would be prophets. Be harder to kill the few that were telling the truth if everybody was. Unwilling. Means he had an empty tabernacle. If David's not willing to take the ark into the tabernacle, do you know what you have up there? You have a tabernacle. It looks like a tabernacle. It's built like a tabernacle. It's got priests just like the tabernacle. But you know what it didn't have? I wonder whether anybody noticed. In Revelation 2.5, Jesus tells the church at Ephesus, and if you hadn't, hadn't noticed, He liked them. I mean... He had good things to say to him. Remember the height from which you fall and repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. How many times has this happened and nobody even noticed? Oh, church, I bet our theology doesn't allow for it to even happen. Have you noticed how many of the scary scriptures we've just explained away altogether? We sing the song, Create in me a clean heart, but we do not believe the words that we're singing, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. The anointing is the most precious thing that we could ever hope to possess or be possessed by. The presence of the living God is everything. We cannot sell it out for what is expedient. He will require of you the death of Uzzah, I promise. And you might have more oozing in you than you want. Every time that you want to say, Lord, don't, don't, don't touch that there. Every time that you're like, Lord, do I really, I have to tell this stranger at the post office this? Yes. The answer is yes a thousand times over. The answer is yes before you even know what he asked you to do. That's what lordship is. It's when you say yes and you've never even heard the question. What does it mean to take up your cross and follow Him? It means the answer is yes, whether it costs you your head, your hands and feet, or an inch at a time. It means yes. Oh, that we could carry the presence of God. We liked worship. Of course, this was safe. Oh, we loved worship. It felt great. Of course, everybody in here likes worship. 
Why do you carry the ark up on Zion? Why do you put it in a tabernacle at the crossroads of the world? Because you want everyone to see it. You want the world to see it. The church has become a spiritual safety deposit box guarding the little bit of what is left. And we were called to be a torrent, a raging, overwhelming fountain of life for the whole world to see. Not some little eyedropper of substance hidden away somewhere for fear that we might use the last little bit of what we have. We don't have because we're not using. God opens up hollow places for those that have exhausted themselves in His presence. He becomes a fountain for the man that is crying out to Him. Ask me how I know. All right, I'm going to whine. Y'all ready? You get five seconds of whining. I can show up to meeting after meeting and prophesy to everybody in the room. Can I tell you how rare it is that somebody walks up to me and prophesies? I can show up and teach in meeting after meeting after meeting. Can I tell you how rare it is that somebody walks up to me and says, look at what I've learned. I want to show you something. The more you pour out, the more He'll give you. Perhaps you need to find your spigot. It hasn't mattered what country we've shown up in. It hasn't mattered what people we've shown up to be, whether they liked us or didn't like us. You know who never fails to show up with us? The presence of God. And that's all we need. Some love us and some hate us. Some should love us and hate us. But the presence of God never leaves anybody indifferent. And if that's your attitude towards Christ, towards this church, or towards ministry in, 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 at large, if you're just indifferent, there's another word for that. Lukewarm. That's a one-way vomit express right out of the body of Christ. I don't care whether I make you mad today or happy today. I hope to move you in one direction or another. At least then we'll know where we stand. I can't believe this. Pick up with me in verse 12. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. If there's a blessing to be had in this life that is worth having, it flows out of the presence of God. It doesn't come from MasterCard. It doesn't come from Chase Bank. It doesn't come from a rich relative who leaves it to you. It comes from the presence of God. And what a man has that can be measured in the heavens came from the king. Be careful of your attachments to things that did not come from the king. You might be building a prison for yourself. You'd be surprised how many people have been trapped in a sofa, collapsed under a television, unable to hear the screams of the poor because of the comforts of their living room. These things were never blessings. Even if they got them on sale, they were not blessings. They were distractions. Church, what you get in the presence of God is what is worth having. When you're tired, when you're beat up, where do your thoughts go? You know what? I just need to have a glass of wine and a walk with my wife. You know what? What I need to do is just go to a movie. You know what you need? You need the presence of God. 
There's never been a man that died of exhaustion while running on the power of the Holy Ghost. The Apostle Paul said in the last verse of the first chapter to the Colossians, I labor with all of His energy which so powerfully works in me. How did He do what He did? He was a carrier of the presence. Have you noticed that the world is shaking their boots because they may come into contact with Ebola? I have no concern. None. We'll hold Ebola healing services and it will not bother me a bit. I don't intend to live one moment longer than the Lord intends for me to live. And I'm not protecting my life. I already gave it away. They can shake in their boots about ISIS. Those of you that have been with me in Muslim countries, we have no concern. None. My life belongs to another. One pastor said I had a death wish. I'm concerned that he doesn't. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken... When those who were carrying the ark of God had taken... How many steps? But God's always fascinated with seven. Six. The year 5,775. Psalm 90 and verse 4. The day is as a thousand years. Peter said the same thing. It's almost as if they were on to something. We marched around Jericho for six days and on the seventh something happened. Every week we have six days in which a man works and on the seventh something happened. Every year we have six feasts in which it takes Six to bring the atonement. And in the seventh, something happens. They brought up the ark of God the first time on a cart. Wrong. They brought it up with the help of an oxen. Wrong. And they brought it up without sacrifice. Wrong. There's a prescribed way. An old way. The glory of God has got to be carried on your shoulders. And every step is a sacrificial step. You're still in the six steps. You're going from Passover to unleavened bread to first fruits to Pentecost to trumpets to the day when Israel becomes saved, Yom Kippur. And then the seventh step is the ark of God inhabits the whole tabernacle. And the world is saved. Guys, it's with great sacrifice that we carry the name. By the way, it's clear that I'm not going to be able to preach everything that I intended to preach. When David gets the ark into the tabernacle, there's a curious little line. Verse 18, After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave... And he describes various gifts. Has Jesus finished his sacrifice? The king of kings was sacrificed once for all. His sacrifice is over. Now the gospel says that we fill up in our flesh what was lacking in regards to Christ's sufferings. If somebody is going to suffer now, it's not him. It's us. You know what he's done? 
He finished his sacrifice and he has poured out gifts. If you speak in other tongues, if you prophesy, if you feel anointed of God, that gift came at an enormous sacrifice. And there are people that are waiting out there for a gift that you can bring. Of course, it's going to come at your sacrifice. This is how we follow in the footsteps of Christ. I had hoped to preach to you about each chapter. Good thing that I have more days to preach. I do want to warn you about something. It comes in verse 16. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from the window. And she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. She despised him in her heart. What is it about some people's zeal that just rubs us the wrong way? You know where she was not? She was not in the street dancing. You know where she was not? She was not carrying the ark. She was safely on the sidelines criticizing those that were in the game. And when the Scripture says she despised him in her heart, she comes into the wonderful company of a man like Esau who despised his birthright. She comes into the wonderful company of a man like Goliath that despised David. She comes into the wonderful company of Isaiah 53 when they despised Jesus and considered Him smitten by God. We need to be very careful what it is we despise, what it is we criticize, if we're going to stand at the window and watch, we might as well shut our mouths. Or as one pastor said, if you're not going to do it with me, then get out of my way while I do it. I believe that this congregation is called to act. Truthfully, I believe it of all congregations, but some are just not going to do it. I believe that God has ordained work in advance for you to do. I want to tell you a secret as we close. In 2 Samuel 6, we see a very great praise. David strips down to his underwear. He is so unconcerned with anything except showing appropriate reverence to God. How crazy is it that the things that reverence God upset the people of the world that claim to be acting reverently? The one who despised his very great praise, the last verse of the chapter, bore no children. She cut herself off from the lineage of Christ that day. You know what David goes on to do in the next chapter? In 2 Samuel 6, a very great praise does something. It opens the way for 2 Samuel 7. Oh, if you have a pen, you'll want to write this down. In 2 Samuel 7, God shows up and says, I will build a house for you, David. You're going to have a son. 
and he's going to reign. That's 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 14. See, a very great praise opens the way for a very great promise. The more you praise God, the more you surrender to His Spirit and cast off the flesh, the more you have the opportunity for a revelation that is world-shaking. This begins the Davidic dynasty that Jesus Christ puts the capstone on. This is the key of David that Isaiah would speak about later. This is the beginning of the monarchy of Christ. And it comes immediately after a very great praise. In 2 Samuel 6, we have worship that is uninhibited, unbridled, spirit-filled. And it produces a great revelation of the promise in 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 8, the first verse, it says this, In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. In verse 14, it says this, The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Very great worship brings a very great revelation. Very great worship brings a great revelation and a great revelation yields great victories. You want to know why others don't give up? You want to know why some succeed? They see something you don't. They worshiped in His presence until something became real to them that to you is just theory. They persevered through their worship until they received a promise worth having. And having obtained it, they fought until the battle was won. By the time you get to the ninth chapter, you have a young man with crippled feet who comes and sits at the king's table. There are so many things to tell you about it. His attitude... What am I, a dead dog, that you would notice me? He knew he didn't belong at the king's table. But he ate there every day, the Scripture says. See, when you have a very great worship, you end up with a very great promise. When you have a very great promise, you end up with very great victories. And when you have very great victories... You have very great discipleship, or another way to say it is sonship. You know you don't deserve to sit at His table, but you're going to do it as long as He'll let you do it. If we were reading the book of Deuteronomy, we would do it in a single day and while standing. If we were in the time of Nehemiah and Ezra, we would read the entire counsel of God's Word in a single day and everyone would say amen. But we're not. We're in the 21st century. American churches. So an hour and a half is pushing even our limits here. Do you want His name? Because He's given it. Do you want His presence? Because He's given it. Were you chosen? Because He chose you. Next time we worship, what if you weren't worshiping just for the sake of feeling good? What if the worship was not about you at all? What if the reason 
that you were pressing into the presence of God was to get a very great promise so that you could go out and get a very great victory so you could draw very great disciples. Well, then you might know what it is to carry the presence of God to the nations. Church, we're going somewhere. This is not a bless me group. And for that reason, a lot won't stay apart. It's always been this way. Every 20 people that visit, two people come back, and of those two, every once in a while, one stays. That's okay. Because the few who become carriers of His presence will turn the world upside down. Officer training schools always had a lower graduation rate than basic training. There's a reason for that. Don't think yourself superior to anybody else. That's not the case. You're actually held more responsible for the things that you do know. I want to encourage you, today is Sunday. By the Jewish reckoning, today is the first day of the week. I know it doesn't feel that way to us. It feels like the last day. That's because everything about our culture is backwards and wrong. Deal with it. <laughs> Including today, you have six days to carry His name to someone. So that when we show up here next Sunday, you didn't just hear another sermon and make yourself that much more guilty. You worshipped, got a very great promise, went out and got a very great victory, and brought back a very great disciple. You were called to make disciples. That's what I'm doing, and that's why you're here. I'm asking you to do the same. Can y'all stand to your feet?